Good evening. Glad that you made it back this evening. Take your Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 43. I have to make a confession. I'm technologically challenged. I worked till late last night on this particular message to arrive this morning and discovered that for all practical purposes that I lost it, all that I'd worked on. So I got to recreate all the work I did last night. So I have no idea if it's the same or not, but we'll both be surprised as we journey through this together. Also, this is a new microphone, and so we tried it this morning, and we didn't have something right, apparently, because we had to use the pulpit mic. So this evening, I thought I'd try to fit, the, fit this thing to my head. And the mirror in there, I was looking, and I put it over my ear, and I looked, and it looked like Mickey Mouse. You know, I had my ear cocked way around. I thought, well, that doesn't look right. Tried a different setting and put myself in the eye. So I knew things were not going well. It's just been one of those days, folks. Tonight we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 43, picking up about verse 15, and through the first 14 verses of, verse, of chapter 44. Trust is a valuable commodity. It's hard to obtain, and it's relatively easy to lose. Trust is one of the most significant ingredients in all of human relationships, and who among us has not suffered from its loss? Perhaps it has been from something we have done or said that caused others to have a loss of trust in us, and we've been trying to rebuild that lost trust, or perhaps we've been on the other side and someone has done something that has shattered our trust in them. Well, we certainly feel and see that kind of thing in Joseph's life. Joseph's past had shattered his ability uh, to trust his brothers. In order to trust his brothers, Joseph needed to know and believe two things. That they were telling him the whole truth and that they were truly sorry for probably should say they, they were truly repentant uh, for the things of the past, both before God and before man. So as we take up with this segment of Joseph's story, Simeon is still in prison in Egypt. And Joseph's other sons, having exhausted the provisions that they obtained on their previous trip to Egypt, are now returning once again this time bringing their youngest brother, Benjamin. They hope to prove to this Egyptian official their trustworthiness, to prove that they are not spies, and hopefully to ransom Simeon from prison, and not to mention the hope to obtain more food. The famine is still in place. They are, in addition, according to what we read in chapter 43, they not only are bringing back the money that they found in their sacks on their original journey, 
But in accordance with the instructions of their father, they're bringing double that amount along with some very special gifts for the Egyptian official. Finally, they arrive back in Egypt, and I'm sure that their hearts are full of questions. Will this Egyptian prime minister believe us about this whole money thing, that the money just kind of appeared in our sacks on the way home? Will he release Simeon as he has promised, or will he throw us all in prison once we arrive again? And will he allow us to return with food for our families? Surely with those questions and probably many others echoing in their minds, they were trembling in anxiety as they considered what fate may await them in Egypt. The same fear that gripped them when they found the money in their bags on the return trip from Egypt gripped them now. And so we pick up with that story in verse 15. <clears throat> and so the men took that present and Benjamin, and they took double money in their hand, and they arose and went down to Egypt, and they stood before Joseph. And when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Take these men to my house and slaughter an animal. And make ready, for these men will dine with me at noon. Then the man did as Joseph ordered, and the man brought the men into Joseph's house. Now, once again, we're going to be covering a lot of verses, and so I'm going to be summarizing as we go, rather than reading every verse. Well, rather to their great surprise, when they arrived in Egypt, they're taken to Joseph's private mansion. Now, that could be good or bad. Remember where the dungeon was located in Potiphar's house? That there may also be a dungeon, as far as they know, in Joseph's home. They were, I think, absolutely terrified that Joseph was going to have them thrown into prison along with Simeon. Verse 18, we're told, now the men were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house. And they said it is because of the money which was returned in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may make a case against us and seize, seize us to take us as slaves with our donkeys. Well, Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 1 kind of speaks to that mindset, and that is the wicked flee when no one pursues. A guilty conscience... That does strange things to our minds. The brothers wasted no time in taking that steward, the uh, servant of Joseph, aside, the same man who had handled their earlier transaction, and explained how they found that money in their sacks and they had returned it. Verses 20 through 22 tell us they drew near to the steward of Joseph's house. They talked with him at the door of the house. And said, Oh, sir, we indeed came down the first time to buy food, but it happened when we came into the encampment that we opened our sacks, and there each man's money was in the mouth of our sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it back in our hand, and we have brought down other money in our hand to buy food. We do not know who put the money in our sacks. Now, the steward's response is found in verses 23 through 25. I do want you to notice what he says. He says, and peace be with you. That is not an Egyptian phrase. What kind of a phrase is that? 
It's a Jewish phrase. Shalom, peace be with you. He is trying to reassure these men. He says, Shalom, peace be with you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given your treasure in your sacks. I have, I had your money. And then he brought Simeon out to them. And so the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water. And they washed their feet and he gave their donkeys feed. And then they made the present ready for Joseph's coming at noon. For they heard that they would eat bread there. Now, as I already said, I love that response of Joseph's steward. He knew how to talk to these men about peace in their own language. And then he was a witness to these men about their own God. Because he says to them, your own God Elohim, he is the one who has caused it to be so. Now, guilt has prevented these brothers from seeing the hand of God, his hand of grace at work in their lives. How humbling it must be to receive from this pagan idol worshiper how God was working in their lives. The prime minister of England has... England, I said it again. The Prime Minister of Egypt. Anytime I say England, substitute Egypt. I have a short circuit in my brain, I think. The Prime Minister of Egypt has a banquet, not England. And then according to verse 33, it says, And he had them seated. Now this is important. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the younger according to his youth. And the men looked in astonishment at one another. <clears throat> we may not really see that unless we think about it a little bit. As the brothers look around the table, <clears throat> something becomes apparent to them, and that is that they have been seated in the order of their age, from the oldest to the youngest. That can hardly be a coincidence. Henry Morris in his commentary notes that no less than 39 million 917 thousand different orders of those 11 individuals are possible. This is the first time in 20, over 20 years that all 12 brothers have been together in the same place, but only one of them knows, and that's Joseph. Now, Joseph tests them to see what they think about Benjamin. Verse 24 says, and then he took servings to them from before him. They're taking them from his table to the table of his guest. But Benjamin's serving was five times as much as theirs, and so they drank and were merry with him. Benjamin now has the position that Joseph once had, which was what? The favorite son of his father. Were these brothers still men who were motivated by jealousy? Their jealousy of Joseph had caused them to sell him into slavery. How would they react when Benjamin again is singled out and shown favored status? Although the brothers notice that he is given more than they, there is no sign of jealousy. After all, if you already have more than you can possibly eat, what difference does it make if somebody has five times more? 
Obviously, much has been accomplished in these sand-hardened brothers through the reawakening of their conscience. But now Joseph needs to know if they are truly changed men. Joseph improvises a test to determine if in truth they are really changed. You don't have an outline, but if you want the outline, it's very simple. There are just three points. Number one, the conspiracy. The conspiracy. Chapter 44, verses 1 through 13. Early in the morning, following the feast, Joseph's brothers were ready to head for home in Canaan once more. Joseph instructs his steward to give them as much food as they can carry but to once again place their money back in their sacks and to add one additional thing, and that is to put his own personal silver cup in Benjamin's sack. And after they are on their way, probably hardly left outside of the city, Joseph sent his steward, and I would imagine a bunch of armed guards with him, to waylay his brothers and accuse them of stealing his silver cup. Joseph's brothers are taken back by the accusation. They reminded the steward that after all, they had attempted to return the money that they had found in their sacks from the, surf, from the first trip. And so, very self-assured of their innocence, they overcompensate by offering that the thief would pay for, for this theft with his life and the rest of them would become Joseph's slaves if they found the cup. Bad decision. They were so confident of their innocence that each man in turn quickly turned down the sack, opened his sack to prove that this could not be true. I think there must have been a little gasp when they opened the first sack, and there was the money all over again. After all, the logic of their argument about their innocence had been based on the fact, well, how could you think that we would stoop to stealing the silver cup since we returned the money we found in the sack? Yet for some unknown reason, that money has jumped back in their sack again. The basis for the confidence in their innocence is gone. And when the cup is found in Benjamin's sack, they are literally sick at heart. And they tore their garments in sorrow. The supreme test of character came... When that incriminating cup was found in Benjamin's sack, Benjamin's guilt seems on all practical surfaces to have been established by the discovery of that cup in his sack. Everything rested on how these brothers reacted to this that has just happened to Benjamin. Twenty-two years before, they had gladly sold Joseph into slavery. Yet now, 
There is not one of the brothers who did not wish that this particular cup was in his sack rather than Benjamin's. And when Benjamin was taken back to Egypt, they went with him. The last part of verse 13 says, And each man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. And they were ready to offer themselves as Joseph's slaves. Number two, the confrontation. Chapter 44, verses 14 and 15. And so Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, and he was still there. And they fell, literally prostrated themselves before him on the ground. And Joseph said to them, What deed is this you have done? Did you not know that such a man as I can certainly practice divination? Now, let me just make a brief comment about the verse divination. In that day, there were cultic worship and experiences where the silver cup, like he's talking about, was used to predict the future. I really don't believe that Joseph used it as a cup of divination. I don't think he practiced that. But he had to have some practical explanation for why he is able to see into the things that his brothers are doing. And I think that's what we see here. But how Joseph's heart must have really rejoiced when he looked up and he saw not just Benjamin, but all of his brothers have returned. Perhaps they have changed after all. Men who, who would be more concerned about their younger brother and their aged father than they were about themselves. Third thing, the confession. Verse, chapter 44, verses 16 through 34. And what we have here is a portrait of real repentance, and there are two bullet points, if you will. Number one, a conviction of sin. When they are ushered into Joseph's house, Judah steps forward and in verse 16 says, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he also, with whom the cup was found. Now that's a strange combination of words. Judah is saying that although they are innocent of the crime that they are being accused of, they are guilty of something much worse. And God is now punishing them for what they had done previously. They sound, at least on the surface, repentant. But are they? Is it real? You know, people can feel sorry and not be repentant. Were these brothers sorry for their sinful behavior, or were they sorry for the trouble that that behavior had landed them in? Were they sorry for the sin, or were they sorry for the shame that they now felt? You know, almost every criminal is sorry after he is arrested. But the sorrow may only be because he was caught. Have you ever stepped in to try to referee a fight between two children? 
goes something like this. At the conclusion of the skirmish, you bring the two of them together and you say, Okay, now you hug your brother and you tell him you are sorry. And they resist. And so you say, If you do not make up, then you are going to be grounded. And so they very weakly hug each other and they say, Sorry. Do you think that's really genuine? Probably not. Probably not. But Joseph's brothers, I believe, feel real regret. And that's a good beginning. But regret alone can be nothing more than we would expect from anyone who is faced with the unpleasant circumstances and consequences of sin. But repentance is more than just a recognition of sin and regret for sin. It is a decision to turn from sin. And the second bullet point would be there is a genuine change. There is a genuine change. Joseph gives them one more chance to take the path of self-preservation. In verse 17, he says, But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. He says, I'm not going to be so unjust. The man in whose hand the cup was found, he shall be my slave. But as for you, you can go in peace to your father. I don't know if you stop to consider it, but Joseph has just set up a situation that really mimics how his brothers had abandoned him. He now gave them the opportunity to do the same thing to Benjamin that they had done to him as their father's favorite son. Benjamin is now the favorite son. Jacob is just as Guilty of favoritism now as he was when Joseph was a young man. You know, as we look around, we try to talk about genuine change and real repentance. Uh, Even in our own day, people can be attracted to the gospel without really being repentant. Mickey Cohan was a infamous gangster right after World War II. One night, Cohan attended an evangelistic meeting, and he seemed interested. Realizing what a dramatic impact his conversion could have on the world, many Christian leaders began to visit him. And after one long, night-long session, he was urged to open the door and let Christ in, based on Revelation 3.20, and Cohen responded. But as the months passed, people saw no change in his life of crime. When confronted, he responded that no one told him that he had to give up his work or his friends. After all, there were Christian football players and Christian cowboys and Christian politicians. Why not a Christian gangster? It was at this time that Cohen was told about repentance... And it was at that time that he announced he really didn't want to have anything to do with Christianity. But in our story, Judah steps up 
And in verses 18 through 28, he explains how all of this would affect their aged father. Remember, this is Joseph's father as well. For the first time, Joseph hears what happened at home 20 years earlier when his brothers had returned without him. He learned of his father's heartbroken cry in verse 28 when he is presented with Joseph's bloody coat and he says, Surely he has been torn to pieces. Judah then says in verses 30 and 31, Now therefore when I come to your servant my father and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, it will happen when he sees that the lad is not with us, that he will die. So your servants will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. He's saying not only will it bring sorrow and grief to him, but that it will, it will rush him forward to an early grave. Judah now pleads with Joseph to allow Benjamin to return home with his brothers and that he will personally take his place as Joseph's slave. Verse 32 says, For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. Can we see genuine change in the brothers? I believe that we can say unequivocally, yes, we see a change. The brothers acknowledge their guilt. They plead for mercy. And then look at the evidence. The brothers who were once filled with jealousy at the favoritism that was shown to Joseph now do not react when favoritism is shown to Benjamin. The brothers who abandoned Joseph will not desert Benjamin. The brothers who sold Joseph for pocket change will not offer now offer themselves in exchange for their brother, willing to give up their own freedom. The brothers who had lied to their father now plead for mercy on his behalf. Here stood the man who convinced his brothers to sell Joseph into slavery, now offering himself to be a slave. There can be little doubt, I think, that he is truly repentant, that he is truly changed. It is evident that his brothers really are changed men. And that allows Joseph to know that they are really repentant, and he leads him to reveal his real identity to his brothers. And this is the point at which you've been watching one of those serial TV shows, and this little thing comes up and it says, to be continued next week. I want to conclude this evening by drawing three principles about trust. Trust is a precious commodity, and we have to treasure it. It takes years to develop trust. However, it can be destroyed by a single act of self-centeredness.
Secondly, when we do something to violate the trust that others have in us, we really need to try to restore it. And trust can only be restored, first of all, by honesty. And third and finally tonight, trust must be earned. It is not simply granted. Often those who are trying to rebuild trust they have somehow destroyed will simply demand, you need to trust me. That's not the way it works. The truth is we need to prove that we can be trusted. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the message that we find in your word and how it continues to be relevant in our day as it was thousands of years ago. We thank you for the message that we find in Joseph about forgiveness. We thank you for the message that we see about the reality of true repentance. And I pray that you'd help each of us to see how these truths may apply in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You stand with me.